Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Paradise Paradox. So before Anacapulco, I got a chance to catch up with Kenny Palorentano, the traveling anarchist adventurer, and he told us a little bit about his, his adventures traveling around, hitchhiking, uh, t- taking trips up and down uh, the Americas, and uh, telling us about how he was spreading the, the sweet, sweet message of liberty while he was doing that, and ways to smoothly communicate uh, new ideas to people in a way that plants seeds inside their mind. We'll also talk about permaculture, how humans can work in harmony with the earth to to create something new and, and better, um, to create something which is beneficial for for the earth, for the animals and plants on the earth, but also beneficial for the for the humans in creating a world of abundance. So those are some, some great things that we get into. Head on over to theparadiseparadox.com slash 96, theparadiseparadox.com slash 96. That's where you're going to find the show notes this episode. You'll find the links to Kenny's website and his Facebook uh, page uh, and some other interesting things which he mentions. Uh, and you can see there on theparadiseparadox.com as you're browsing through course there's a lot of great free content on there a lot of interviews with interesting fascinating people and a lot of interesting ideas talking about the illuminati planting uh subconscious ufos into your butthole uh to make you a grand new person um there's also at the top you notice there's a tip button so uh we are uh, supported by listeners like you you can see that that tip button press click on it and uh, you'll be transported to another world where you can instantly transport your bitcoins to our wallets. So suggest a donation, one US dollar per episode that you like, but don't let that limit you. Give more, give less, give whatever you can. We appreciate it all. Also, you notice there's, there's um, some uh, T-shirt links on there so you can get a T-shirt to support your, your hate, detest, the testing and loathing of central banks by a real money t-shirt that says that has pictures of gold silver and bitcoin on there look cool and impress all of your anarchistic friends and uh there's also one a ufo one which has has a picture of chichen itza looks really cool especially with the tie-dye so jump on there get some t-shirts donate some money whatever you want to do it's fine by me be yourself be true to yourself and be amazing. Thanks for listening and let's get into it. So we're still here in in Acapulco in preparation for the Anacapulco conference that's happening in the, well, started on Friday. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so amazing. <laughs> cool. Uh, so what, what brings you here? Uh, well, I was here last year, and it changed my life, and uh, figured this year is going to be even bigger. There's some names that are bigger than like almost anybody we had last year at least in my mind you know adam kokesh and larkin rose yep. i'm dying to listen to and talk to both of them and uh yeah the community down here is just amazing and 
This time I came down for like three and a half weeks instead of less than a week like last year just so I could spend time getting to know more people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, so you've, you've been uh, like hitchhiking and, and uh, I don't know, taking taking flights and greyhounds all across the North America <laughs> yeah. the, the past few months since we, since we uh, last had a, had a chat. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, oh, yeah. Since we last spoke, I... Uh, I've been everywhere from Montana, right next to the Canadian border, down to uh, the southern end of Guatemala, and quite a few places in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of hitchhiking. Only one flight so far. I didn't. I, I don't know. <laughs> I avoid it for the most part. The hitchhiking and uh, hitchhiking, especially, is just more fulfilling. It's a great way to like get the message out to random people that you'll never see again, you don't know, aren't necessarily interested in it. Okay. But uh, it's little snippets, uh, you know, where you can just like insert yourself into a random person's life, and sometimes they're totally on board already, and it's just great conversation about the same kind of things I talk to people about in my community. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a totally random person living in, uh, you know, in the system, yeah. and I just it always ends up in conversation where there's ways you can kind of slip in some ideas that are new to them. Mm. Uh, okay. So it, uh, if you have a conversation like that, uh, let's see. I'm just <laughs> like, when you, when you start mentioning that, like people already living in the system, I, I did actually have this thought of, uh, um, like imagining uh, a hitchhiker getting picked up and then eventually getting into a very heated conversation <laughs> with the driver and the driver going like, that's it, I, you know, I love my government, get out of my car. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, kind of trying, to <laughs> trying to integrate that with reality. I don't think that's what you would do at all. No. It, it would be very different I'm... from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's certainly a very possible situation for people, but I, uh-huh. I, I do my best to, anytime I'm talking with somebody, to like meet them where they are, mm-hmm. you know. And so, rather than like going way outside of what is their realm of possibility, just kind of uh, nudging them a little bit, you know, where where they've got something they're complaining about the government about, just kind of pointing out the moral side of it or pointing yep. out like how that's more of a systemic issue it's not because of the current party or mm-hmm. whatever like that just little bits here and there yep um and a lot of times we don't even really talk about that side of it it's just more connecting on uh, yeah i try to i try to bring up the moral points without even applying it in the conversation to the state like just mm. talking about the idea of the non-aggression principle without bringing them right to like, oh yeah, well, government is violence. Yeah, it's, you know what it's I mean. A, if, if we haven't gotten someone uh, bridge to cross, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and if someone has never thought about the idea of the NAP before, mm. then trying to apply it to something isn't going to really do any good. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. trying to get them, trying to give them questions that they'll ask themselves later, basically, yeah, or like little little thoughts that later on will pop up, and they're like, "Huh, this kind of sounds like that thing Kenny was saying." <laughs> you know, I, I really do my best to be non-combative in. Especially in something like that, where somebody's doing me a favor to begin with, you know, like, yeah, yeah, um, a lot of talk about, yeah, more the just general philosophical worldview kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, going through California, I got picked up by a guy who said he would give me a ride to Soledad, which was like half an hour south of where we were. And we started talking. First, he was talking about his job. And it's like, you know, kind of trying to steer away from that because people talking about their jobs is generally just complaining. That's not very interesting. And so we, I, we brought it more to just uh, kind of work ethic in general. And, you know, because he's someone who, like myself, is generally like one of the hardest working people wherever he is. And mm-hmm. bring that to, well, why aren't you focusing your energy on whatever it is you're passionate about? You know, yeah. uh, why aren't, you know, why don't you work for yourself? Why don't you start a business? Why don't you whatever and it turns out that he was working on it he's got a location that he can rent out like the end of the month that that i was writing with him and start his own cabinet shop mm-hmm. and because that's what he's always been passionate about is working with wood and creating like handmade solutions for things that people need and that turned into a conversation about jesus and his idea that the fact that Jesus was a carpenter was actually very important and something a lot of people miss out on because he's working with his hands. He's creating solutions for people. He, a carpenter is like connected with the natural world because like, you know, if you go and cut down all the trees so that you can make your products, well, yep. the next year you don't have anything to make products out of. You've put yourself out of business. It's, it's kind of got that, that need for balance built into it. Yeah. And then we went from there to kind of introducing I talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, Jesus was very anti-religion. You know, he was anti-government. Right. He was, Anti, you know, he used, he used that as a the little bridging point there, kind of. <laughs> and then we pull up, you know, towards the exit for his town where he lives, and he drove past it. And I was like, well, looked at him, like, kind of confused. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, I want to keep talking. I'll give you a ride down to Paso Robles, which was like a another hour and a half down the road. So was, I mean, and we just talked the whole way about music and about, you know, just got into all sorts of things. At one point he asked me who I'm going to vote for, uh-huh. you know, but, uh, uh, Clinton or Ron or what's his name? The crazy billionaire Trump or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I don't vote. Like, oh, what do you mean? And, you know, so every time that something came up, it was like he kind of brought up a topic or he asked a question uh-huh. that let me sort of ease in these ideas rather than ever having to like push something down on him yep. and it was it went really well he uh he was a little like oh you don't vote why not and i'm like well i just believe you know if you want to change the world you change yourself change what you're doing don't ask someone else to change things for you mm-hmm. i don't i don't want someone forcing their beliefs on other people i don't want to force my beliefs on anybody and you know a very careful placement you know never like oh because it's wrong 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 because <laughs> You can just tell when you're talking to somebody what's, at least I, I can usually tell yep. what's going to trigger them, what's going to, you know, if you, if you say something that makes somebody go on the defensive, they're not really going to hear much of what you have to say from that point on, mm. most of the time, especially mm. anybody where, you know, if you start tr- triggering that cognitive, cognitive dissonance, the rest of the conversation is basically wasted. So I'd much rather just plant very small seeds than try to make a big point and lose out on the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something I I, I still struggle with because uh, sometimes I'm just like, well, look, uh, you know, taxation is theft or whatever it is, and I'll just keep trying to like keep asking someone a question over and over when they don't want to respond to it, and <laughs> they they are you know they're getting on the back foot about it, which isn't it's really not not productive. Okay, you know, occasionally like there's a there's a place for that, 
but most of the time, not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So it's like I try, I try to like in, invent different metaphors and analogies. Of, so it's like like uh, like with uh, with Jesus, like Jesus always taught through parables, and I, I think that's a very powerful way of, yeah. of teaching uh, because you, it can give you this this perspective on the world, which is can be very different to to how you might previously have assumed things were. Yeah. When many people learn much better through a story than they do through like presenting them with the idea itself. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, whatever, for whatever reason, you know, there's so many different ways that people learn and the story is one of the one of the main ones, which kind of makes sense when you look at, you know, our history as a people for so long mm. all human knowledge was passed down through storytelling basically, through yep. verbal sharing of, of prior prior happenings or you know old ideas you know and it was pretty much all parables and there's some to some level that just resonates really deeply with a lot of people yeah yeah um, yeah I read I read that uh, I went back and read your your newsletter today and uh, oh your not your newsletter your what do you call it email blast yeah Is that my, what my email update or my, yep. yeah, my journey update yeah yep, yep. and about uh, about uh, Jesus being a carpenter, it made me think about uh, one of my favorite stories from Taoism, the the Taoist the butcher, uh, mm. and which, well, maybe that's not one of your favorite stories, being <laughs> a vegan. But <laughs> but, <laughs> but the point of the story isn't about killing animals. The, the point of the story is is about the the, the skill an, an artisan can have when, when he's entirely focused uh, that that he can uh, cleave the meat straight away from the bone and never have to replace his knife because he's 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 that skilled yeah. and focused. He's mm. entirely in the moment. Yeah, fully um, present. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, hmm. yeah, yeah. That's a, <laughs> it's a good it's a good parable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so you were telling me the the other day you got a, you got into a conversation where or a, even a debate where it was like five five people uh, against you five of five anarchists here uh, to to come to Anacapulco. Yeah, uh, yeah. And of course you you're to some extent you're the you're the outlier here because uh, you don't ne- you don't necessarily believe in capitalism but you have some other ideas. So, yeah. uh, and well, in, not just in that respect, but many. So, what what was the what was the situation there? Yeah, it was a uh, it was a uh, quite the quite the little situation there. It started off really small. There's three of us talking, and then at some point, someone mentioned something about how capitalism just solved all of these problems. Just like a blanket, like oh well, that just fixes all of it. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. And started to like question some things and say, well, what okay. what does capitalism actually mean to you? You know, trying to get yep. that definition there. And as soon as as soon as that happened, more a couple more people came in. <laughs> it's like they heard like someone's critiquing capitalism. <laughs> we need to defend it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, most of like the the first. Once we got everyone out of that, because it kind of turned into just a little circular argument, they're like, no, capitalism is good, you know, and 
we didn't have clearly defined terms and some people weren't really aware of the context of the conversation before that because I was making points you know very specifically in response to something and yeah so we get we get to kind of a clean slate and I say okay if we if we are agreeing that you know as long as there's uh, there's no conflict between people there's no you know, this person owns this land because they uh, homestead it. It was a big thing that came up. Like, land ownership was a huge mm. focus here. So it's like, okay. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they're, they're saying, you know, no, if you if it's unowned and you homestead it, then you own it and mm. this. And I was like, well, what do you mean you own it? How do you how do you own the land? Yes, I, I, I would agree you own the benefits of what you're doing on it. You know, you're growing food. You own that food. Okay. You're growing, But what about the land itself? It was their billions of years before you will be there long after the human race is gone mm. you know kind of trying to take that approach just to see where they would fall there and yeah. it just came like no 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 you if nobody else owned it and you homestead it then you own it and as long as we agree to that and the non-aggression principle there's no conflict yep so well the the like the john locke's argument is like you t- you turn this land from something that wasn't productive into something that is productive and and so you're you're the one who should control it. You're the you're the one who has possession, so to speak, of the land. Right, and that and, that was yeah. definitely the take that these guys were were going with. And mm. I so okay, so we're we're saying that it's a a non-productive thing. We're saying it's just kind mm. of it, it almost has the assumption that like the land doesn't do anything unless people mm. are involved. Mm. Like yes, it's very not creating, anthropocentric. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean yes, uh, the land isn't producing value for humans. But my, so my example was, you know, we've got a a river running through this piece of land and people come and they, you know, it's unowned land. So they homestead little blocks all along it. And now there's no conflict between its people. There's no inter-human conflict because they've all agreed, you know, it's unowned and we've homesteaded it. Now we each have our own piece and they all start farming it and they put up fences and you know, they, they put in little water wheels or whatever, maybe a dam, you know, whatever they do. Mm-hmm. And they've they've now made it productive in yeah. that sense of it's creating value for people. Yes, yes. But there were deer who were drinking from this river and can't get to it anymore. Yeah. There were fish who were living in the river and traveling down it who are now being stopped from doing so or caught and eaten or whatever, you know. There's this whole other system that was already existing. It was productive. It was producing food for many, many life forms, most Mm. likely. You know, it was a a working system. There was things that were growing and eating each other and growing and eating each other, and all of that was happening. Mm -hmm. And by these people coming in and owning the land now, that has all been stopped. And so my basically, I was really just trying to get people to, trying to get these guys to look at it like, is is it all right to have an anthropocentric view about everything? Just because it's mm. good for humans, does that mean it's good? Does that mean it's the best thing? And uh, that took <laughs> a good hour of circling around that before the first person out of that group was like, oh, okay, I see the point you're trying to make. <laughs> maybe <laughs> there's, there's more to it than what can benefit humans. Yep. And... Uh, I feel like that's something that's really missed in a lot of 
a lot of spheres. Like obviously the the general state, corporate, et cetera, culture completely ignores that side. Yeah. You know, let, let's rape the earth as much as we can as long as we're still getting a profit from it. You know, maximize profit at the cost of everything else. But even in the, the side of like, the people who live their life by the non-aggression principle and want to create a better world, the effects of humanity and what we're doing on every other living thing around us and the, the organism that is the earth, you know, the overall system that we're living in, is kind of ignored a lot of times. And I feel like that's pretty important. I mean, we are pieces of the earth. Like, we are cells in an organism, basically. You know, like, the, an example I look at is when you look at me or you look at you at this scale, we look like one thing. But when you zoom in, you see trillions of little cells. And if you're zoomed in on them, they each look like an individual thing. Mm. But if yeah, you zoom in, you know, it, it's, it fractals down. And there's the <laughs> atoms in the cells, the subatomic part, all that. And at each level, if that's what you're looking at, it looks like a bunch of individuals. Yep. But, and, I, and, and it even, uh, well, it, it is from, from a lot of perspectives, too. Like, I was having a, a conversation last night with uh, Pontus and, and Ules, the, the Swedish yeah. scientist yeah. guys. And uh, they, they were saying how... Um, it's such a common thing in nature that that um, species develop these symbiotic relationships, and that's why we have like like uh, stomach flora, yeah, um, because these these uh, creatures have evolved apparently to 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 be with us and to to help us survive, so they can survive and propagate. Yeah, and, and so we're not just you know if you look at a human body, it's not just a human body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. most of the life in the inside of these flesh bags doesn't contain our DNA. Mm. Most of the cells in your body are actually things that are foreign to you in that, in that sense. And, you know, and it, it works in the other direction too, I feel like. If, if you look at us, we look like an individual thing, but when you zoom out and you're looking at it from, you know, a solar system away, yep. all you see is the Earth. Yep. And it's got systems, it's got weather, it's got tides, it's got all of this stuff that's going on. It is a living thing. Mm. And I feel like a lot of a lot of humanity has this uh, this ego that the Earth is a, a thing that exists for us, for our benefit, for our enjoyment, for us to profit off of. And uh, I think that that is very much not the case. And uh, you know, if what what hurts the Earth hurts the human race. You know, if we poison the air, we poison ourselves. If we poison the water, we poison ourselves. If we poison the land, we poison... Like, if we kill, start killing off species, <clears throat> you know, the lack of biodiversity affects us as well. And that, that is... That idea of a, a systems approach to thing, looking, looking at the whole picture rather than just one little aspect of it is something that's been greatly lacking for thousands of years at least in you know the western world as we refer to it um and I, I see it making a resurgence now i mean that's basically the entire premise of permaculture is systems approaches to everything you know that's the permaculture the term is generally used just for like the agricultural side of things okay but most people who get into that side also later 
<clears throat> get very interested in like social permaculture, looking at all of humanity and our social structures in a systems approach as well. You know, what are the what are the secondary effects of everything that's happening? If there's this issue that we're dealing with, <clears throat> you can usually find one thing that seems to be the cause, but most of the time it's not just one thing. That's just the most immediate that was like the tipping point. That was the that was the thing that really pushed it that last little bit of the way or that was just the most recent yeah. thing that caused it yeah. but usually there's all sorts of little aspects around it that played a role as well yeah i remember in uh in london i think it was about five four or five years ago now that they had these these riots and and uh the the popular news story was like a drug dealer got his sneakers stolen by the police and that triggered a citywide riot and I was like that doesn't sound right I'm pretty sure there must, you know, there must be some underlying cause there and yeah yeah yeah. or you know like the, the Ferguson riots yeah. going on you know it's like it, oh this one guy was killed by police and so people are rioting here and all across the country and it's like well no that yes, that was the most recent thing that happened, and may have been that you know the the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. But there were a million other straws underneath it. It's it's a systemic problem, and you know it's like you if you eat a terrible diet and you don't exercise and all this stuff, all of a sudden you you know you are like running up a hill for some reason, and then you have like a heart attack. It's like, oh, it's because I tried to run up that hill. It's like, well, no, it's because you tried to run up that hill while you were in this condition <laughs> that caused it. It's not the running up the hill. It's all the underlying factors. Yes, yes. Mm, yeah, that we, we see, I see people in the movement really looking at the, like our social structures that way. They look at the state and they look at, you know, the parenting and how people were raised and religion, all these things, they look at a lot of those facets and how how those underlying things are leading to the the more obvious issues that we see, but they kind of leave it there and they only they only use that approach in that one field rather than applying it to everything else. Okay, so what what are some examples of, of problems or situations that we could analyze in that way? to give us a different perspective? <clears throat> um, let's see. It's a, okay, it's a tough question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, hmm. Yeah, um, what would be a good one right off the top? Yeah. Okay, um, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we could come back to that. But <laughs> um, yeah. Well, no, I mean, violence, right? Like, yeah. like physical violence occurring between people, whether, you know, like uh, assaults, rapes, all of that. Okay. You know, that is, we, it, we, a lot of people look at it this way, certainly like Stefan Molyneux promotes these ideas and stuff, and um, Peter Joseph was a big pusher of this idea as well. Like, you know, you, you see violence coming in these little interpersonal things and if you are only looking right there you're like oh this person you know is a drug addict and so he beats his wife or he's an alcoholic so he beats his wife or he's got a chemical imbalance in his brain so he yep. you know acts violently in this way but 
at the same time, they're living in a society where violence is very acceptable. You know, we know that the state is violence, you know, the yep. forcing people to do things, ta taking, taking control of things by, you know, the barrel of a gun is violence. So that is like inherent in all of it. And then there's violence in the media and in uh, the religious stories and just in the history, you know, the, at least in the U.S., I know in school, U.S. history or even world history, every time you take it in school was always the history of wars. It was always just about wars and who won them and how they were won and then the next war and the next war and the next war. There's a focus on violence. interesting to think about, like you said, about the religious stories. I remember like being five years old and being taught about uh, the story of Noah's Ark and, you know, God just hated everybody <laughs> yeah yeah wipe them out smite yeah. them all yeah uh, I, yeah I cain and abel and yeah I, I forget the name of the priest but there's there's a story in the bible about a priest who is bald and is being mocked by children hmm. and he you know tells them that it's rude to mock people and they shouldn't do that and they keep mocking him and so god sends a bear to the village and it eats all the children Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I don't remember that one. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, there's yeah. all these underlying things that kind of normalize this violence and just put it into the daily life. And so the fact that this individual acts out that way isn't, it isn't just a, a unique thing. It's based on a system mm -hmm. of violence. Yeah. Mm. Yep. That's, yep. That's the only one that comes to mind right away. Is yeah, that, well, that's but. a really good one. Yeah, and, yeah, of course, you have, like, uh, the culture of people hitting their children because because they're misbehaving, whatever yeah. that means. Yeah. Uh, which is, it's still so strong all over the world, and pe people are, uh, it's very difficult for, for people to see that objectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, if they're if they're caught in that trap, yeah. Yeah, and that's, again, yeah, that's just violence that is considered normal all over the world, and then people don't expect that to lead to other forms of violence as well. Mm. If it's normal to hit a child, and that's socially acceptable, then children are growing up thinking that hitting is socially acceptable. And if mm -hmm. it's okay to hit a child, a defenseless, small you know, unknowing thing, then why would it not be okay to hit an adult when once you're grown up too? You know, if that's the the programming that you've received, the conditioning that you've received. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like looking at things from this holistic perspective. Like, let's try to take these these other factors into account, which at, at first sight might might not be obvious. So it's like that. Uh, what Frederick Bastiat wrote about, you know, don't just look at the scene, look at the unseen, look at look at the things that are hidden, because that's where you're gonna find out what's actually going on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, there's so much more that isn't isn't readily visible mm. when something happens. If you just see the immediate cause and effect, you know, you don't you don't look at everything that led to the point where that happened, mm. and that's just as important if not more important than the action itself you know if in, in action can't be taken outside of the circumstances that allow it to happen 
you know, like what hmm. what circumstances had to exist for that to happen, and then what created those circumstances. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in the biological world, you know, in the in nature, everything is based on systems. You know, there's the water system, you know, where water evaporates and then condenses and then it rains and then it goes through the ground and it evaporates again. And, you know, everything's based on cycles that have many parts. And if you mess with one part of it, then you affect the whole thing. Like, oh, yeah, you know, let's sell the water rights to this water that's just sitting here in the ground. It won't hurt anything. And they start pulling water out, and all of a sudden California's in a many-year-long drought because they've sold all the water rights and gotten rid of all the groundwater so it can't possibly evaporate and rain again. Mm. You know, and people think that messing with that one little piece isn't going to affect all the others or... You know, the salmon are dying off all around the world because they put up dams, they fish them to death, you know, they mm-hmm. they remove the salmon from the equation and then bears start less, you know, the numbers of bears get smaller, the number of mosquitoes get bigger because salmon eat mosquitoes, the, you know, there's all these little things that take place that mostly are ignored because they're not... They don't see it as a direct causation, even though it is. It's just not the the readily visible part of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does that apply? Let's see. <laughs> how does how does it apply when it when we come to? Jeez. <laughs> uh, well, like this this the the conversation you told me you were having the other night. You you were talking about. Uh, you were talking about agriculture specifically yeah, as well. Yeah, that came up quite a bit. Yeah, that was a um, big point as well because they're really defending, uh, there's a couple people really defending the idea of um, farming and like basically in order for things to be most efficient or most effective, humanity, you know, the human race needs to be creating it basically like we need to be solving the issues because they won't solve themselves you know and so like if we want to feed a lot of people then we need you know not necessarily industrial farming as it appears now but we need farming as people have been practicing it we need you know we need to go out and decide what is where and how these things grow and you know weed around them and all of that, where I I contend that, you know, if we want to feed the human race, we need mostly food forests. We need to help recreate operating systems. Mm-hmm. We, you know, if, if you've got a farm where you plant seeds and then you weed around them and you water them and you, you know, maybe you create nice soil for them beforehand and then when you harvest them, you have to work the soil again and then plant more seeds and do all that again. There's a lot of human energy that has to go in because there's no system in place. Mm-hmm. If you go out and you plant a lot of trees that produce food and you plant some undergrowth, you know, some berries and stuff like that that produces food and you just work the soil, you go out and just go you just go out and till the soil. You know, there's going to be dead things on the ground in a a natural environment. There's going to be leaves, there's going to be bugs, there's all that. If you just work that into the soil, you don't need to add fertilizer because those nutrients are already going back in. Yep. You know, we can just sort of recreate uh, 
what was basically there before us, but with a little bit more focus on feeding humans. Yep. And yep. so this uh, like slight adaptation of a of a natural system to to skew it more in our favor, as opposed to creating this entire artificial environment, like this this laboratory environment where everything is straight and everything is correct. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just it, at the very least. You know, emulating the natural system that was there. Yeah, maybe those aren't the trees that were growing there before, but it's trees growing there in a more natural way. You know, not yeah, not in rows, not with everything in between them being sprayed with poisons. Now, you know, you need the under the undergrowth, all the the little plants on the ground, even if it's things that we don't eat. Those are what provide food for, say, the squirrels and. You know other little critters that are coming around, and they're pooping everywhere, which is putting nutrients back into the ground. And they're eating some of the bugs that are otherwise going to be eating your crops. And they're, you know, these things all happen for a reason. You see a lot where it's like, oh, there's too many of these this species in the area, so let's kill them. It's like, well, if you look, usually when there's too much of a species somewhere. Other species move in to eat them naturally. Like the system, uh, a system will come to balance itself. Yeah. And that, if I don't know, it's like people are impatient. They're too, they're too impatient to let the system balance itself, or they're just so involved in the whole thing already that it can't really balance itself. If you've got farms, you know, you've got rows and rows of corn and some bug comes in and you've already killed off all the undergrowth and you've killed off all the rabbits in the area because they were eating your corn and you've gotten rid of everything or, you know, put up giant scarecrows to get rid of the birds. Well, now there's no birds to come and eat all these bugs that are eating your crops. Whereas if you let the system itself exist, it'll it'll come to balance all the time. You know, in, in permaculture, there, there's basically permaculture has three ethics: care for man, care for the earth, return of the abundance. Which means, return of the abundance. yeah. So <laughs> you grow more food than you need. Will you share it with other people? You, uh-huh. you know, you've got ten apple trees in your in your yard and your on your land, and there's some birds that are coming and eating some of the apples. Mm-hmm. Well. Instead of putting up a scarecrow or shooting the birds or whatever, you either A, just adjust how many apples you're expecting, mm. or you B, you know, plant some more apple trees. Yep. And you say, okay, we've got 10 right now. The birds are eating like, a, you know, a fifth or a sixth of our apples. Let's plant two more apple trees. It won't help us this year, but in a couple of years when they start producing, now the birds can eat the same amount that they already are, and we can get all of the apples that we would have been getting if they weren't eating them. Mm, but and, then isn't that just going to attract more birds? Um, that's. Uh, I mean, it may. Most of the time, if they're attracted to the apples, yeah. they're already going to be coming there. I mean, having more apple trees isn't necessarily going to bring more birds, mm. but the birds usually play a role. I mean, birds, one, spread the seeds of the apples. You know, birds, that's one of the main things that birds do in nature is spreading seeds. And so by letting the birds come and eat the apples, you're guaranteeing that those apple trees are spreading out farther and providing more food for... Maybe the birds go and they drop all the the seeds, you know, because they're pooping closer to their nests. 
And so in a couple of years when those apple trees are there, they don't even bother coming to your farm anymore because now there's apple trees right where they live. Hmm. You know, the, there's, I don't know, there's, uh, it comes back to that anthropocentric thing. Like who's to say that just because the birds are taking away from us, that that's a, a like bad thing. Unless it's like they're eating all the apples and you don't get any and that's your main source of food then it becomes kind of like a self-defense thing yeah but if if you're getting more apples than you can eat already and you're just losing some to the birds that you would just be giving away to somebody else or selling or something then it's like the 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 birds need that food as well like they need something to eat if you get rid of them here they're going to go find something else to eat are they eating somebody else's apples are they you know they're or you starve the birds and they die out. Well, what happens then? There's all sorts of ripples that could happen there that aren't accounted for as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the people was talking about, like, mosquitoes. Like, is it okay to kill off the mosquito population? If we had a, a something we could spray that would kill every mosquito on the planet, would that be okay? Because they do kill humans, not knowingly or consciously, but, like, by spreading malaria or, you know, uh, I think he quoted some number... I won't repeat it because I don't remember exactly what it was, and I don't know if he actually knew it for sure, but he was saying, you know, there were tons of humans every year killed by mosquitoes, so it's yeah. almost, it would be a self-defense thing in some way for us to eliminate the mosquito population. To eliminate all of them. Well, that's just, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound right at all. That yeah. sounds like, it, uh, you know, you could do very horrible things with that kind of logic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But that is that is the logic that much of the human world operates on right now. You know, we've got oh, we've got an issue with this species. Well, let's remove them from the from the equation, at least in this place or in this. You know, let's create a bug spray that kills them and give it to everybody around the world so they can spray it on all their plants. Mm. Well, what happens? Usually, what happens is the bugs become resistant to the thing after a couple generations, and then they're even more dangerous. But you know, again secondary consequences that aren't really thought about until they happen. And then they're like, oh, how did this happen? We weren't expecting this. Hmm. It's like, well, you should have thought about every, you know, more possibilities. Like, what what are the the possible things that could happen from this action that we're about to take? Press like on YouTube, press like on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at BattleAZ, at TroubleBubble, and show your support at donate.theparadiseparadox.com. When, when I look at things like, say, problems with the, with the environment, it seems like um, things get messed up systemically and then people are trying to play catch up so for example you have things like uh uh, say co2 emissions i I don't really know if co2 emissions are really that bad for the environment but but uh, a lot of people believe they are so then they have these carbon credits and you know the big companies buy buy these carbon credits and shuffle a lot of paper around and yeah and that's like you you have this this strong systemic issue which is moving in this particular direction and then they're like oh well we'll just fiddle with a few numbers over here and you know yeah. make it okay um uh, whereas what you're saying is we should uh well maybe not exactly design a system but try to implement a system that's working with things the way they 
you know, the way they, they more naturally flow. Yeah. And, the, and then we won't have to be fighting so hard because we yeah. won't have to play catch up because it's already there and it's already going in more or less the right direction. Yeah. Well, like to, to run with that example of CO2 emissions, mm. if there's too much CO2 being released and we think we, we view that as an issue, mm. well, how do you get rid of CO2? You plant more trees. Plants. <laughs> they need CO2 to survive. Yeah. So by planting trees and food you know just by putting more plants out into the world or you know simply not cutting down all of the plants that are there not clear cutting not killing off the amazon rainforest not you know not removing these things that would take care of the co2 for us mm. the earth would balance that by itself you know that that yes we are putting more co2 into the air than we ever have before but we're also continuously removing the things that would process that co2 and turn it back into oxygen for us mm -hmm. you know that's there's so many people that keep like spider plants and phytodendron and stuff in their houses because it processes the co2 they're releasing and releases oxygen into their house like we again we have this symbiotic relationship we have a symbiotic relationship with every single plant that exists whether or not it produces any food for us just because it needs us to breathe and we need it to breathe Mm -hmm. And that, again, that's something that's kind of missed or forgotten in a lot of ways. And personally, I think the CO2 emission focus is pretty, uh, pretty off from the actual issue. Um, uh, the yeah. evidence shows that there's been many times that the world has had much, much, much higher CO2 levels and has been fine. And there were you know, mammals and other living things that didn't breathe CO2, they needed oxygen, and they survived. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, that really became an issue and started being pushed when they started, uh, started focusing on these ideas of, like, overpopulation. And so mm -hmm. it's like, well, if CO2 is the big issue, and that we need to reduce CO2 in order to fix everything, you know, fix global warming, fix whatever it is. Well, guess what? By breathing, you are polluting the world. You're creating CO2. That makes every human, just by their very existence, a negative effect on the planet. And so when you say, oh, well, we're going to try to reduce the population by 15%, but it's okay because, you know, humans are pollutants. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a fine line between... Oh, CO2 is an issue, and oh, look at that! Humans create CO2 just by existing. You know, that's those. And if you look at the people who push those ideas, it's a lot of the same people who push, you know, mandatory vaccines and you know, Bill Gates talking about wanting to cut the world's population by 15 percent by 2020. You know, like it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a, like a some of the things thing he there. says in speeches. I'm like, did, did he just Terrifying. like did he make, <laughs> maybe he just phrased that wrong or what? <laughs> yeah, uh, it it it's kind of weird the stuff he says sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and as far as you know, actual temperature change, like global warming, in that sense, it's more caused by methane release. Like, mm. methane has more of a greenhouse effect on the planet, which is something you don't really hear about anymore, greenhouse gases. Yeah. Like, that was the big talk when I was in school. Yeah, like that was, It was never about CO2. It was always greenhouse gases. Yeah. Which were, you know, the CFCs from styrofoam and yep. the sprays and stuff, yep. and methane. Well, where does most of the methane on the planet come from? Cows. Cows. Dairy and beef farming. Mm. But there's a lot of money to be made there, mm. and there's no 
there's no way to make money creating, you know, more green options. You can't make a more green. Well, I don't want to say that because Monsanto might take that challenge. <laughs> but <laughs> there's not companies benefiting from making, you know, more green cows. But there are companies benefiting from making, you know, more green energy sources or more green cars. Mm. And so it's, again, there's a lot of underlying factors to that whole argument. And I don't, I, I won't claim to know, you know, yeah, what's actually so, causing so these things, things or, you know, I, none of us do really. But yeah. there's a lot more to it than CO2 is the issue. Yeah, yeah. And again, if CO2 is the issue, just plant more plants. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. Like, take all yeah. the land, take every place where you could grow plants and we've got dirt or, you know, concrete or rooftops like we're, we were just talking about down here, all these rooftops with nothing on them, we'll just cover it all in plants. All of a sudden, we don't have a CO2 problem anymore. Mm. And, you know, reducing the use of the things that, uh, that create more CO2, you know? Let's stop driving so many gas-powered cars. Let's stop, you know, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, stop adding to the problem and then help the natural solutions to the problem flourish. Mm. Yeah, that was actually something that came up during the conversation, too. Because <laughs> one of the people was saying, you know, CO2 is an issue, and that's like the global warming side of it, and then talking about popula- uh, overpopulation and actually saying, you know, well, the only way the Earth is going to get back to where it was or flourish is by the human race being wiped out, you know, dying off. Until the human race dies off, it's just going to keep being a plague on the Earth. You know, If you look at the Earth as an organism from outside, then the human race seems to be a virus. And it's like, well, I don't know about all of that either. Like, That is definitely a, a popular opinion right that's now. A, that's a kind of funny thing. I was thinking about that earlier, actually, because, it, because uh, that's an idea which got popularized in, in The Matrix. It's yeah. the scene from like where Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus and, and it's like, you know what you are. You're a virus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was actually, that, that idea was actually inspired or like ripped off, if, if, depending how you look at it, from the, from the graphic novel, uh, The Invisibles, in mm. which the, the, like the, this old, uh, I don't know, wizard, hobo uh (laughs) tells a a parable and says um that cities are viruses so so nobody knows uh, among humans nobody knows where this idea of a city came from but for a long time like you know humans were nomadic and that sort of thing and then cities started popping up and uh, and um yeah it's according to the the argument that he makes in the in, in the comic book, <laughs> um, c- cities are the problem, not humans. Interesting. As I've heard that from a, a totally different angle, but that same mm. thing that cities are an issue. Mm. Um, cities are one of the roots of the systemic violence because I think it was Charles Eisenstein who said, you know, he said, I define a city as uh, a group of people, a community of people who grows to the point where they can no longer create, they, uh, they can no longer sustain themselves, basically. They can no longer create the necessities of life. They have to import things right. to survive. Not just you know extras, but they, they need to import the necessities of life. Hmm. And the idea there was, well, if you have to import your necessities of life, 
then as soon as that next city over, the next village over, or whatever that you were importing from, has a bad crop, or has you know has something happen and they can't or won't trade or sell that or give those things to you, what are you going to do? Hmm. Well, you're going to go violently take it because you need it to survive now. Hmm. And that was uh, an interesting perspective just on that, you know, if if we're not sustainable ourselves, if we're dependent on outside input to survive, then if that input is not offered willingly by anyone, what do you do? Do you just let yourself die, let your community die, or do you go out and raid other places and take it? Yeah, but I didn't... Uh... I, I'm not sure I buy that because I think if you, if, even if the supply line does get cut off, like why do you necessarily need to go to to violence? I mean, I, I guess that can happen um, in in some cases, but I, I don't think like you know uh, I haven't eaten today. You know, I'm going to go out and kill some people. That's <laughs> well, no, but it's like um, if if the yeah. food supply for a city comes from the three villages nearby, let's say. Mm. All the food for this city comes from... Because there's a lot of cities that don't produce any food whatsoever. Mm. You know, there's some that are moving away from that. But there's, like, let's say, for an example... And, again, this is just... This isn't my argument. Sure, sure. But, uh, let's say, this city gets all of its food from these three villages. And it's a very nice system where the villages are rewarded, you know, whatever it is, a currency thing or a... You know, however it's done, everybody, it's a win-win thing. And then there's a drought, basically. And all of these cities, or all these villages, end up getting just enough, or maybe not even enough food to support themselves. You know, they have enough for themselves, but not even to eat as much as they need to. And now the city has no, and the, you know, the, in a world where we are right now, where it can all be imported from long distances, this is less of an issue. Um, but you know that's a very recent thing. You know, for most of the existence of cities, that wasn't an option. Um, and I think that was, most of this was like a historical, base, you know, it's a historical argument. Um, but so you know that these people, the people in the city who are now starving, it's been a week since there's been any food brought in. You know, they've eaten their last reserves. They've eaten all the canned things that they had. Um, you know, now it's let's say it's two weeks in. It's three, you know as it starts to go, and they know that these villages are holding out a little bit because they're keeping enough for themselves to survive. Yeah, it, uh, it's not necessarily that everyone is going to feel the urge to, or that it would be a, a quick thing. But yeah. at some point, yeah. these people are going to decide, well, we need food. Right. If there's no other sources around except what is being grown in these villages, chances are at least. Sometimes, maybe not every time, maybe not even 50% of the time, but sometimes, and I'd say based on, you know, what we've seen in history over the past couple hundred years and stuff, especially in the Western world and what's happened there, the tendency is going to be towards going and taking what you need from those people. Okay, yeah, that's that's reasonable, yeah. Um, Yeah, but I guess, uh, like, you you can never be truly independent um uh but i guess you can you can be more independent right yeah Um, if if we all grow most of what we need you know if if these this city and these villages are all growing you know 80 percent of what they need and then doing little bits of trade like this one grows more corn than the others and they trade it with them and that sort of thing and then when one or a few have a collapse 
then it, the whole system doesn't really fall apart. Or if if you are, I mean, if you're growing food, you tend to grow more than you need. Even if, if like, whether you're growing in a 20 by 20 foot garden, an acre or a hundred acres, mm. you're, you, I mean, you can produce so much food in, in small places using, not even necessarily using like what is considered permaculture gardening, but just simple organic, like logical organic gardening, you know, having multiple types of plants, planting things at the right times, planting things together that go well together, beans, squash, and corn together, you know, rotating your crops, the things that put nitrogen back into the soil during this off-season of the things that need a lot of nitrogen, mm-hmm. all of this, you you tend to create more food than you know what to do with. So you, was, you, you had a figure that was like, what was it, a, a half an acre? Half an acre, 10,000 pounds of food a year, which is very, I, I have not done this myself. I'm not a farmer. I don't claim to be. That's not yep. my focus. But I know more than one person who has done that. And it takes between two and five years to get to that point from when you start, depending on how good the soil is where you are, depending on the climate. But 10,000 pounds of food a year in half an acre is sort of a, a baseline for a lot of people in the permaculture movement. That's, and yeah. Yeah, you know, using those statistics, you think about how, I, it'd be interesting to do the math real quick and see, well, how many people are there on the planet? How many pounds, of, assuming there's a variety, because that, that is a variety of food. That's not monocropping. That's tomatoes and carrots and lettuce and kale. And you know, that's multiple things. And it's going to be different things in different climates. But just how many pounds of food a year does the average person eat? Not the average person, let's say, because right now the average person eats a whole lot of crap that doesn't give them any value. But how many not pounds the average of, U.S. Yeah. <laughs> how many pounds of food does a person need to survive, to be healthy? Not, not to survive, to be healthy, yep. to be nourished yep. in a year. And, I mean, you know, on half an acre, you can feed a, more than a family of four. You can, it's some, and yeah, I won't quote a number, but it's, more than the amount of people that usually live in a half-acre plot in first-world countries. And most of those half-acre plots in first-world countries are growing grass. <laughs> you know, which no, nothing eats because they then go out and they push petroleum-powered lawnmowers <laughs> and they cut that grass. You know, like, it, it's ridiculous. But yeah, we can, we can grow so much so much food in such small places and such potent varieties of food as well and that's still like a more of a farming technique too there's also you know lots of places where they're just going back to food forests they just grow whether there's already a forest there with shade trees and they start to bring in more food-based plants or you know they go in and first they plant a bunch of date palms because they require almost no water and then as there's more shade after a couple of years, water that does fall down is, will stay in the soil more so they can plant smaller plants. You know, you plant some berries and you plant the, after five years, you can have a big piece of land that not only will invite animals and insects and things to come in and start to create a system, again, a living thing, but people can just walk through and pick food. When I was in Guatemala, you know, I was staying on in uh, a small town near Lake Atitlan, and there was all sorts of crappy food being shipped in. And most of the locals were eating, like, Doritos and drinking Pepsi, which was sad. But the people who were coming there, the tourists or the people who had moved there, were all just eating 
mangoes and apples and papayas and pineapples and all. Did I just say apples? I had avocados. <laughs> um, because the trees were everywhere. You know, you'd be sitting out on somebody's porch and hear like, boom, 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 hitting on the roof. And you're like, what the hell's going on? They're like, oh, yeah, that's food. There's avocados falling on the roof. You know, and avocado trees produce so many avocados you know papaya trees like these trees fruit trees in general produce tons of food like for years i lived next to someone who had an apple tree and she didn't do anything to it you know she had somebody come and trim it every couple of years she paid somebody to come and trim it back just be so it would look nice basically mm. you know no fertilizer no special soil it's just sitting in the grass no bug sprays no you know nothing done to it just an apple tree that was planted 30 years before and was just sitting there and I would go out and cause she didn't even really want any apples. She'd ask for me to give her, you know, maybe a five gallon bucket's worth. And I could go out and pick, I mean, a hundred, 200 pounds of apples more than once a season, just from one tree that is having nothing done to it. And that's with birds and bugs coming and eating. Those are just the ones that we wanted to keep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I'm making quarts and quarts of applesauce at a time, eating fresh <laughs> apple every day for months at a time. You know, and that's one tree. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Also, I I think well, I have my little like I live in an apartment. I don't exactly have a garden, but I have a, like a row of pot plants and stuff. And uh, so a lot of, a lot of days I'll go out and water, water my pot plants and say hello to them and i do think there's like this spiritual element to gardening like to oh, absolutely. say say hi to the plants and and uh uh i don't know what it is it's kind of like you you think hey i i help this thing to grow yeah. it's like like seeing your own child or something yeah it's a very symbiotic relationship and you mm. yeah the love that goes in you appreciate the food you get out of it more than if you bought those same plants or same herbs at a store, you know, it, it's going to taste better to you just because you know the amount of time and love that you put into it. Like your brain will make it taste better to you. Mm. I, I always experienced that with cannabis. I used to grow and I knew tons of people who grew and you'd get, you know, weed from somebody that looked just terrible. They would never carry it in the dispensary or something, uh. but then you would smoke it and it was so much better than what you would get that looked really nice. Cause you knew that person and you knew that, like, I mean, I would spend hours a day just sitting with my plants. I played music for them yeah. 24 hours a day. I, you know, there's a different relationship. There's a different intention going in. It's not, oh, I'm going to grow these plants to make a profit. I need to make every, you know, do everything I can to benefit from these plants for my, you know, to get a, a benefit for myself. Hmm. It's, oh, I, I love these plants. I love being around them. I want to make, help them flourish. Mm -hmm. knowing that they're going to give that to me when they're done and I can share it with people. And whether that's a, an energetic thing that's going... I mean, we know that plants are affected by the vibrations around them. Mm -hmm. We know that human thought is vibration that can be picked up by the things around you. So just that happening is going to change how those plants grow. It's going to change some levels of that you know mm -hmm. to, to what extent i can't say but yeah, there is and, and definitely chemically something as well i mean there's yeah. that you can uh, all the all these different types of plants that will like remove um like poison from the air that will they will make your house cleaner yeah just by having a, a few plants in yeah. your house. <laughs> yeah 
And uh, yeah, there's some some study I looked at briefly, which was like the psychological effects of plants and having just a couple of plants in your house, a few green things will make you feel happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, something just came to mind. Uh, there's a permaculture project. Um, it's by a group called the Permaculture Design Institute, mm-hmm. which is uh, created by Jeff Lawton. And they had a project that they did in, I think, Tel Aviv and Jordan and a couple other places. And it's called Greening the Desert. And so they went out and they they dug swales, you know, these uh, basically like ditches to capture rainwater in these areas where there's very little groundwater, almost none. And there is rainwater, though. And um, they, I I forget the exact setup. Basically, it was like mounds with a a ditch in between. And the mounds had a lot of good... um, compost in them basically you know dead stuff leaves all that to put a lot of nutrients there and then along the top of that the first thing they did <clears throat> was they planted uh i forget the exact tree but it was a tree that it was it was some kind of palm tree i believe a tree that requires very little light grows pretty quickly or very little water grows pretty quickly and then creates shade mm-hmm. and once that shade exists the water that's being caught there will last longer in the system less of it will evaporate and next year they came and they planted a smaller tree that requires a little bit more water mm-hmm. and a little bit less sunlight. And basically it took them, I think it was four years from when I started this project. And if you go look it up online, just the Greening the Desert Permaculture Design Institute. Mm. Holy crap. They, they have like a zoomed out picture from like a nearby hill. Desert. Just nothing but desert. You know, there's no green. <laughs> and then you can see this one maybe an acre or two plot of just lush green. Wow. And it's a food forest. It's date trees. It's <laughs> you know, coconut trees. It's pineapple trees. Like, it's a bunch of food that's growing. And that, I mean, there was no chemicals or anything special that had to be used. There were no, I mean, it was just simply helping create a system there, basically. And once, once you get those things planted, you don't have to do anything to them. They're not like carrots or corn or something where you have to keep planting them and harvesting planting and harvesting planting and harvesting you just go out and pick the fruit Mm. and then you let it grow more fruit and then you go out and pick (laughs) the fruit again and they keep getting bigger and they keep producing more as they get bigger sometimes (laughs) you have to trim some things back but other than that it just takes care of itself (laughs) and there's there's these stories uh like the some some of the the stories of, of fiction where they uh there was one story, a fictional story, like a novel that someone wrote about someone who lived on the edge of a desert and he, over like 50 years he planted this entire thing. Uh, and when I first read that, I was like, okay, so it's just fiction. But no, it is actually, yeah. <laughs> these these things have happened over the over the 20th century. There were a couple of cases of, uh, I think one was in India and this guy just, yeah, over 30, 50 years, uh, he, he really... He made a legacy. He turned a desert into a rainforest. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. As the plants are there, as they build their root systems and, you know, they create shade, which lets more moisture stay in the ground. They create root systems that capture the moisture that comes into the ground and brings it back into the plant. Like it, it does, it, it creates a cycle. It, it's, it's amazing what can happen when you just kind of 
help things along, you know? That's what I see happening moving into the future is like, the human race doesn't need to die off for things to get better. The human race doesn't need to, you know, come up with crazy hyper-technological solutions for all these things. Mm. We just need to work with nature. Yeah. Do whatever we can to help the way things would have kind of gone without us, just help it get back close to that. And it will be, if it's the natural systems and us doing whatever we can to help them flourish, then everything's going to benefit. Mm. And that's, I, I think there's a, a lot of people coming towards those realizations now. There's a lot of people realizing that, you know, one of the most important things about farming of any kind is soil. It's creating the healthiest soil that you can. Once you create healthy soil, you basically just throw seeds in the ground and they do their thing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so t tell, us, uh, tell us a bit about your website. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's, it's live right now. I'm still doing a little bit of work on it. It's uh, kennysconsciouskitchen.com. Um, there's a whole lot of focuses on the website. Uh, a big part is you know my, my blogging, my writing about my travels and experiences, the people that I meet and all the crazy adventures that I'm going on basically um, but another uh, one of the the real driving forces behind creating it is I do a lot of research and compiling of lists you know I've got a list of like free education websites and a list of world-changing events like Anarchapulco and uh, for a lot of the cities that I've been to I create lists of like farmers markets and places to get free or super cheap food and putting all that out there so as many people as possible can benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, another part of that listing kind of is my links page is gonna, <laughs> I mean, a, a few hundred links to great podcasts, to great musicians, documentaries, um, you know, places to do research or like libraries, you know, like libraries of anarchist texts or metaphysical texts or whatever just trying to basically the whole idea is just to share all of the things that I learn and all the things that I find that are seem beneficial you know they're beneficial to me at least with as many people as I can I'm just trying to help everyone that's interested to learn from my experiences and then hopefully bring people to me that are interested in the same thing and then I also uh, you know a little bit on there about what it is that I'm, I'm actually like working on making sort of a, uh, not a business in that sense really, but like how I'm supporting myself. You know, I, as a traveling chef, you know, I travel around and stay with people for free and cook them food. Uh, the, a term that I've come up with for what I, the part of what I do is you know, life optimization facilitator. <laughs> I go and, uh, you know, over the last eight months since I started traveling, I've stayed with probably at least a dozen people for anywhere from four days to a couple weeks or more and uh, I'll cook them food, you know, three meals a day, I help clean, I help um, with like what would kind of be considered counseling I guess, you know, just listening to the issues they're having, listening to where they're at in their life and helping them get another perspective on it and helping them uh, focus on, you know, changing their self-talk, changing what it is that they're doing that's creating these issues for themselves. Um, I've helped half a dozen people move 
in that time. You know, a few of them moved from living in a house to living on the road, you know, helped them sell off belongings, get rid of belongings, choose what actually was important and what wasn't, helped them talk through the stress and anxiety that comes along with making a life change like that. Like, mm. just being present and making myself, a, you know, a, basically my whole journey is about being of service. And there's a lot of ways that I do it, you know, and whether it's doing like healing work, massage and energy healing, or doing cooking, or uh, just, you know, helping people move or whatever. And uh, yeah, so mostly it's just about sharing information and sharing experiences with a little bit about like, hey, here's what I'm doing if you want to help <laughs> me out by having me come help you out. Cool. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Great. Kenny's Conscious Kitchen. Yeah, kennysconsciouskitchen.com. Yep. <laughs> nice. Okay, great. Thanks thanks for thanks for having this conversation. Yeah, thank me. you. I look forward to our next one. They're always yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're great. Mm-hmm. Cool, yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Paradise Paradox. Jump on over to the paradiseparadox.com slash ninety six. You find the show notes for this episode and a whole lot more great content. Cycle back through it, print it out and use it as toilet paper. Whatever you want to do, just don't ignore it because the Paradise Paradox is a force of nature. You're going to go over to theparadiseparadox.com slash 96. You see the show notes. You can get a link to, to Kenny's website, a bunch of other cool stuff, stuff that you mentioned there. Uh, and don't forget, um, give us a little tip. You see the tip button up the top. We really appreciate it when you show us a little token of support and appreciation. Uh, it makes us know that we're meaningful, that our existence is, is potent in this reality, that we're not just talking to a, a blank wall whenever we're uh, recording. So jump on over to theparadiseparadox.com. You can also get some, some t-shirts from us, um, cool t-shirts representing your, your hate for central banks or love for UFOs, some other stuff as well. Okay, so thanks so much. Talk to you soon.